Welcome back to the Falklands War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 20. We heard how the assault of two sisters in Mount Harriet went last episode. Both were taken within two and a half hours. But three Paris attack on Mount Longdon was a different proposition. It's a steep-sided hill about a mile long, running almost west to east. Its main ridge above 600 feet in places and overall about 300 feet above the surrounding ground. The Argentinian 7th Regiment was defending this hill under its commander, Lieutenant Colonel Ortiz Jimenez, and it overlooked the sector named Plata, or Silver. This stretched from Mount Longdon eastwards as the northern arm of Stanley Harbour, nearly seven miles away. The Argentinians did not build deep defences here, and 7th Regiment was stretched along its ridge. The summit of Mount Longdon was held by only one company, Bravo, with three platoons, but behind them was another platoon of the 10th Engineer Company, which was fighting as infantry. There were also eight heavy 12.7mm machine guns manned by Marines. The British later claimed there were commandos amongst the regiment, but this is wrong. The local hill was commanded by Major Carlos Salvadores, 7th Regiment 2IC. This was the northwestern corner of the Argentinian defence, and with two platoons on the northern side and one on the western side with the engineer's platoon held in reserve. The Argentinians didn't regard this hill as the most strategic point, and in fact kept calling it Mount London instead of Mount Longdon. It was here that three para began to fight the most costly land action of the war. It was the last of three brigades' objectives, and it was going to cost the British in lives. The main difficulty they were going to face was the trek five miles over open ground to get to the attack point, besides the battle itself. They also had failed to pinpoint the Argentinian defences properly. The plan was to attack with two companies. One would head to a smaller hill around half a kilometre north of Mount Longdon and use this as a fire base, while a second company assaulted the hill's western end. Then they'd work their way along the ridge supported by fire from the north. What the British didn't realise was that they chose the strongest part of the hill to assault. At 9pm, after four hours of marching, Hugh Pike's men were moving on the lower slopes of Longdon. They were at their jump-off line, which was a stream about half a mile from the foot of the hill. The artillery had stopped firing, and three para were hoping to surprise the Argentinians. And unfortunately for the Argentinians, they had switched off a very potent piece of kit, their Razzit radar. It had been used the previous night and picked up British patrols down the valley, and these had been hit by artillery and mortar fire. But tonight, an officer had ordered it switched off for fear that the British would detect it and launch a Harrier attack or their rockets and artillery. They also believed that the British would not attack at night. A fatal mistake. So three para moved quickly to the rising ground when a corporal of three companies stepped on a mine. It shattered his leg, but he survived, while the Argentinians realized they were being attacked and opened fire. Three para had expected to find a single company protecting Longdon, but as we've heard, there were four. The para companies rushed forward, hoping for their fire-based support, but it was not to be. Alpha Company had aimed at the 500-foot hill to the north, but they had a nasty surprise when they arrived there to set up the firebase. The main Argentinian machine guns and artillery could see them clearly on the top of this hill, and they were forced back. There would be no fire support from this strategic position, and now the British were in trouble. Argentinian snipers were also equipped with night vision goggles and began to hit the paras with accurate fire. Three Paro Bravo company was hit in the open and forced 
to throw themselves into gullies and behind rocks along the steep face of the hill. Hugh Pike told journalists afterwards that his men were holding on uncomfortably. Bravo Company was commanded by a tough, stocky ex-SAS man called Mike Argue, and their fight turned very bitter. The resistance above was fierce, and they were hit by mortars, machine guns, snipers, and recoilless rifles. This battle dissolved into a series of section actions by small groups of British soldiers working forward up the hill using their 84mm and 66mm rockets. Lieutenant Andrew Bickerdike, who commanded 4 platoon, was shot in the leg and then put out of action. Corporal Bailey from the platoon charged Avanka 50 yards away, but fell shot in the stomach. Bickerdike's platoon sergeant Ian McKay regrouped the men and leapt to his feet, driving forward, working above the bunkers and lobbing two grenades into one, but then he was shot dead. McKay was awarded the Victoria Cross posthumously for this act of bravery. Pike ordered the Milan missile carriers to try and break the line, but an entire section of three men from the Milan team was wiped out by a direct hit from a recoilless rifle. Some men were shot more than once as the snipers found their range. They were extremely accurate, and now the British had to deploy the lesser-used direct-fire-on-friendly position tactic. This was calling in artillery fire on themselves. The paras moved backwards from the summit by a few dozen yards and called down artillery virtually where they lay. This is usually the last act of a unit about to be overrun, but they were relying on the accuracy of their own artillery. British forward artillery observer Captain Willie McCracken called down the fire within yards of his own position. Later, the paras told the story of how the closest shells to fall around them were fired by the British, but not one para was wounded or killed by this artillery bombardment. Then a section of fire platoon found itself under heavy machine gun fire, and two men, Goff and Gray, charged the machine gun nest with grenades and bayonets, killing all inside except one. Bravo Company paused. They needed to renew their attack immediately or lose impetus. By now, the casualty rate was extraordinarily high. Argue's 4 platoon was reduced by 50%. He had 12 men left out of 25. All other companies had virtually the same level of casualty rate. Anything over 15% is bad, 25% dangerously high, 50% is catastrophic. Bravo Company had already lost 13 men dead, nearly 30 wounded, but they were three para and pushed forward once more. Still, the Argentinians didn't budge. It was madness to continue, so Pike ordered a halt. Alpha Company now began to move around through their positions and more artillery support was called in. As the first light of the new day dawned, the Argentinians finally began to sag and break. Their firing died away. Many of the Argentinian defenders had been killed by three para bayonets. Still, they did not give up. Shell fire during the day accounted for more men. Three para finally lost 23 men killed and 47 wounded. The stretcher bearers were working non-stop, staggering with their burdens. The forward dressing station was at the bottom of the hill and two doctors were fighting for the men's lives. The injuries were mainly shrapnel. One man had just arrived on the hill when he was hit in the artery in his thigh. His comrades held a poncho over him as the snow hammered down. The bleeding was hard to staunch, the drip hard to administer. Back on Mount Longdon, a lone Argentinian rifleman held out near the center of the hill, firing constantly on the British. He was eventually hit with an 84mm missile and fired no more.
One Argentinian platoon commanded by 2nd Lieutenant Lantaro Jimenez managed to slip away. It was the morning of the 12th of June, 1982, and three commando brigades stopped moving. They could not push forward. 42 and 45 commando had been briefed to seize their objectives and thereafter to exploit forward of Tumbledown. But the delays of the battles during the night meant they were now exposed in the morning light because forward of Mount Harriet and Two Sisters lay two miles of open ground. That was on the route to Tumbledown, and it was honeycombed with bunkers. Brigadier Thompson ordered the men to go firm, dig in where they were. Pike's blood was up, though, and he said they should push on, but Thompson knew that the way would be littered with British dead, far more than they'd taken so far, so he erred on the side of patience. The result of the night's fighting was very serious for the Argentinians. The entire outer ring of mountains and hills around Stanley had been lost. Out of 850 troops defending the position, 50 were dead, 420 were prisoners, around 380 managed to retreat to Stanley. Three Para was now only five miles away from Stanley. Back at the port, Brigadier General Joffre had tried to control the progress of the battle, but it was impossible even for someone as innovative as him. Joffre wanted to launch a counter-attack on Longdon during the battle, but then decided instead to bolster the defences at Tumbledown. It was freezing that morning, and the platoon assigned only managed four miles and five hours before they stopped, setting up a blocking position on the track north of Tumbledown waiting for the British. While both sides seemed to take a breath, darkness descended once again. It was the night of the 12th of June. The British were hoping to launch an attack, but decided they'll do it in the next night, the 13th. The main reason was helicopters did not have time to move the Scots guards to their assembly area below Mount Harriet, behind Goat Ridge. So Major General Moore decided to delay his supporting attack for 24 hours, which of course had upset three commando brigade. It was a quiet night, much to the delight of both sets of soldiers. Dawn broke on the 13th of June. It was a fine day. The sun was shining. This was the day Three Para was going to assault Stanley, and everyone agreed it was going to be a bloody day. First, though, the Scots guards moved towards their assembly area at first light, and their officers studied the objectives while sporadic artillery fire dropped around them. The first troops in action on the 13th were 30 men of the headquarters company of the Scots guards, commanded by Major Richard Bethel. He was a 32-year-old former SAS officer and looking forward to action. His role was to create a diversionary attack along with the Blues and Royals southeast of Mount Harriet. Bethel had already survived a mine blast after his Land Rover triggered one on a road during previous day's patrols. They advanced in the dark of the 13th towards Tumbledown. It's a rocky ridge about a mile and a half long but very narrow and 750 feet high at its most prominent point. It dominated the area of open ground and was the key to unlocking Stanley and probably the end of the war. Some Argentinian maps named it Cerro Destartelado, almost a literal translation of Tumbledown, but ironically, the Argentinian defenders continued to call it Tumbledown. And defending Tumbledown was the 5th Marine Infantry Battalion under Commander Carlos Robaccio. He smiled a lot and was regarded as a highly efficient officer, but his smiles were absent this day as he thought about the breadth of land he was forced to defend. His battalion headquarters were a mile and a half away, 
almost half the distance to Stanley. Mike Company wasn't even on Tumbledown, but Sapper Hill and November Company was on the hill proper. It was towards November Company that Major Bethel and his guards approached, but by 8.30pm they had still not encountered the enemy when suddenly one of the Blues and Royal Scorpion vehicles hit a mine, blowing it into the air and causing severe damage, but by some miracle the crew were virtually unhurt. The remaining vehicles stopped and Bethel's men moved forward. In the dark they spotted the enemy's sangos, but these were found to be empty. Where were they? They didn't have long to find out. Bethel was standing in the middle of the position with Drill Sergeant Danny White, debating about what to do when the Argentinians opened fire. The British replied, and it was chaos. Flashes of firing blinded both sides. Bethel and his men were fighting through 11 Argentinian trenches. Two Scots guards fell dead. Four others were wounded in the exchange. Bethel himself picked up a fallen Bren gun and continued firing. This battle, though, lasted more than two hours. Then Bethel radioed for direct support from the guards and blues, but they were trapped in the minefield. Bethel had little choice. He had to withdraw. His defensive party now included two Scots pipers who were acting as medical orderlies. As he lay in a trench trying to decide what to do, a wounded Argentinian crawled over a nearby parapet and tossed a grenade into his trench. Bethel shot him with a Bren gun, but the grenade went off peppering his legs and wounding one of the pipers in the lung. They began to retreat as mortars landed amongst them and artillery shells dropped nearby. These men carried their casualties, but a moment later they entered another minefield. Two more men lost their feet, blown off as they carried the wounded themselves. Then two more went down hit by shrapnel. These battered guardsmen eventually dragged themselves back to the Blues and Royals' position, carrying their wounded. It was now time for the main group of Scots guards to head into battle, and they launched their attack at 9pm, with Golf Company crossing the start line first. It was snowing, flurries were blowing through the air as they went, and soon they reached the slopes of Tumbledown. At first, nothing happened, but as they climbed, left flank company passed through Golf to approach the main heights of Tumbledown, where some of the finest Argentinian troops based on the Falklands waited for them. The Argentine marines regarded themselves as the best troops on the islands, and they probably were. Their rank and file were still conscripts, but the marine system of taking in new men through the year resulted in the unit having better trained soldiers all around. They were also dressed in cold weather clothing and had been left intact as a unit by Menendez, increasing their morale. They were also supported by a marine artillery battery. There were also some men of the infantry on Tumbledown, men of the 4th, the 6th and the 12th regiments who escaped from Two Sisters and Harriet two nights earlier. The Scots guards moved from west to east, but the left flank came under a hail of Argentinian fire. Waiting for them was Lieutenant Villabraza's November Company, but he had four instead of the usual three marine platoons, as well as a marine engineer platoon, and about 50 more men from the army. November Company could also call on powerful mortar and artillery support, but they were all concentrated on the eastern side of Tumbledown, overlooking Stanley. They had not taken advantage of the total length of the strategic hill. From around 2 a.m. on the morning of the 13th, Sub-Lieutenant Carlos Vasquez's number 4 platoon based on Tumbledown fought one of the most protracted direct battles of this war, with Scots guards intermingled amongst his men along the line of the trenches. 
Vasquez's personal account tallies exactly with those of the guards, something that very seldom happens in war. He explained how both sides used close fire by their artillery, calling down the strikes virtually on their own positions to try and dislodge the other. Vasquez said, By 0700 there were only two foxholes left, mine and one next to it. The machine guns had run out of ammunition, and the British were lobbing phosphorus grenades into the two trenches. Eventually, the one next to Sub-Lieutenant Vasquez was hit. A man was shot running out of the burning trench, and moments later, three British soldiers pointed their firearms at Vasquez over the lip of his trench, and that was that. He surrendered. Of the 26 Marines in Vasquez's platoon, six were killed and four wounded. The army platoon nearby had seven dead and the same number wounded. Eventually, the combined army and marine defences experienced 50% casualties. After they were overrun, the Argentinian commanders ordered a counter-attack. The infantry of Bravo Company 6th Regiment on the eastern end of Tumbledown formed up under Major Oscar Hamet, supported by a marine engineer platoon. It was just after 7am, still dark, when the platoons mobilised, but as they began to fight, they realised the British were actually above them and had somehow outflanked them. The platoons of around 45 men were quickly reduced to 16 active. One was 2nd Lieutenant La Madrid, who realised that instead of a counter-attack, they were now involved in a fighting retreat. Eventually, La Madrid and 13 soldiers managed to stagger into Stanley. The rest had been killed, wounded or taken prisoner. The British artillery was making their presence felt. We eventually got through to Stanley, said La Madrid later, through what I would like to say was a perfect barrage fired by the Royal Artillery. He lost men in that barrage, and the survivors only made it back to the port by waiting for gaps as the shells landed. So the Argentinians lost Tumbledown, but only after a stout and prolonged resistance which upset the British timetable and led to the postponement of the Gurkhas on Mount William. This saved Mike Company from having to face the Gurkhas, who were feared by the Argentinians. At least 20 Argentinians had died defending Tumbledown, although the exact number has been difficult to establish. The Scots Guards lost 7 dead and around 40 injured. Another battle was being waged a mile to the north, and that was for Wireless Ridge, where two para attacked along a valley through which the Moody Brook stream flowed. Lieutenant Colonel Jimenez's 7th Regiment would be in the thick of things once more after managing to withdraw from Mount Longdon. It would be a quick battle, but the Argentinians were preparing two counter-attacks. They weren't finished yet. What happened next is for episode 21. The music for the series is a composition by Kevin MacLeod called Devastation and Revenge. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you can. It helps increase the visibility. Or if you'd like to contact me, you can email me through the website abwarpodcast.com or direct message me on Twitter. My handle is at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye.